to a Hope 103.2 podcast. Hello, this is Colette Smart. I'm a psychologist and a teacher, and I'm your host on Raising Teens. I'm also a parent, and so I'm in the middle of raising my own teens and young adults. I know that raising teens can be fun and crazy and exciting, but also terrifying and even lonely. I've experienced all of these emotions, sometimes all in the same day. On this podcast, I'm joined by well-known experts, and we will chat about some of the most common questions I get asked about raising teenagers in my own work, and even some questions I've had myself. I have such hope for this generation of young people. So each episode is jam-packed with support so that you can get on with the job that you do best. That is connecting with and loving your team. Sarah McMahon is the co-founder and director of Body Matters Australasia, an outpatient treatment option established because of a dire lack of genuine quality treatment services for eating and body image issues in Australia and abroad. She's worked in the field of eating disorders for over 15 years, supporting hundreds of people to achieve recovery. Body Matters currently treats a few hundred clients per week with a team that includes doctors, psychologists and dietitians. Sarah is a regular voice in the media as the body image expert for various mainstream publications. Please be advised that this episode contains language around eating disorders. It's a broad area and because of that, this conversation is just a starting point or a part of the journey. Unfortunately, we can't give you everything you will need on this topic in one episode, but there are a number of links in the show notes where you can find more information and support. Hi, Sarah. It's so good to have you on Raising Teens. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you and I sat on a board together some years ago, uh, actually a really long time ago. I think that's how we actually first met. And you were the very first person that I ever heard mention the term health at every size. So that was probably about 13 years ago. We're going to get into that a little bit today. But I think that shaped a lot of what I began to do in some of my work with teens around body image and mental health around what teenagers face on social media. And then I was also honored to have you contribute to my chapter on body image in my book, They'll Be Okay. So in this podcast, we're really going to be focusing on boys more than girls. I know you've got two little boys and two of my three are boys. And so let's just start off by talking about what are the main differences you have found in your research and all your work on male and female teens, particularly in the area of body image and eating concerns? It's a really great question because I think often boys are left behind in the discussion around body image and eating disorders in particular. But in actual fact, boys are severely impacted by body image in slightly different ways to girls. And I guess there's you know a couple of key characteristics that are different from girls. So the first one is a focus or an emphasis around muscle tone. 
uh, which isn't necessarily the experience that we have with girls. Uh, it's much more around thinness still and body shape. And secondly, masculinity is the other emphasis. And so, you know, it makes sense that when we look at action figurines and things like that, muscles and masculinity often considered to go hand in hand. But in actual fact, in the same way that females come in all shapes and sizes, so do males. And, uh, you know, not every male is designed to be really lean and muscly. Yeah, thanks for saying that. There's a new diagnosis in the DSM-5 that we're seeing more and more presentations of, particularly with boys, and that is called ARFID. Um, so for our listeners, the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual version 5, which we currently use, and it's loosely known as the Bible of mental health and disorders that is used by practitioners. So can you tell us a little bit about this ARFID or Avoidant and Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. Can you just break that down for us a little bit? Yeah, so this is really interesting because I think often when things reach the DSM, you know, every revision there's uh, new diagnoses that are included and often they're, they're years in the making because to be diagnosed as an illness, there needs to be a fairly robust amount of research on it and ideas about the fact that there are lots of people presenting with this similar kind of cluster of symptoms. So I think we've seen ARFID around in practice for a really long time, but it's great that now we've got a name and we've got some research now and you know things like that to help us understand what it is. If we think about anorexia as a diagnosis that is often quite well known. So restriction of food, there's often fear of weight gain and it's predominantly seen in females. I guess when we think about someone with an eating disorder, that really stereotyped eating disorder, skeletal look, you know, that's someone with anorexia. Most people with eating disorders actually are in the healthy weight range and you wouldn't know to look at them that they have an eating disorder. But ARFID is a little bit like anorexia in the sense that there's severe restriction of food usually but the key difference is it's not characterised by body image concerns. So there's not typically fear of weight gain. You might have heard of a term called orthorexia. So um, that's kind of a little bit like anorexia, but again, with the focus on healthy eating rather than weight loss um, or weight maintenance. So kind of a fixation on healthy food. Exactly. So that's something that comes under the ARFID umbrella because it doesn't have the preoccupation with body image. But more and more, I guess what we'd see and we're seeing more and more of is the fussy eating kind of cases where it's not just fussy eating, it's, it's really sort of taken to another level in the sense that there can be severe weight loss or I guess failure to thrive or other sorts of uh, health conditions or issues associated with malnutrition because someone's not eating enough to adequately meet their developmental milestones. So ARFID is often seen as these very extreme fussy eaters in children and, and then if it's not addressed uh, into adolescence and adulthood. And often boys will be the people that slip through the gaps because we might see it as a phase or we don't sort of think too much about them because they're off the radar a little bit more. But, yeah, it's, it's really kind of interesting and great that we now have diagnostic criteria. And typically what we're seeing is people with this ARFID diagnosis there's two or three different types of presentations. So one is that there's generally a lack of interest in food. So these are the types of people that kind of only eat like white pasta, white bread, you know, generally bland, predictable food from a packet that's uninspiring probably for, for a lot of people. The second characteristic that they might have would be around sensory characteristics. So we're seeing this after diagnosis more and more with people who are on the spectrum, for example. There's some suggestion that people who have this sensory awareness to food that there perhaps is a physiological basis to it. So they might actually have more taste buds on their tongue, which means that they're a super taster. So it's not imaginary for these people. They're, they really are kind of bombarded with sensory experience for some of them. 
Um, and then the third one is a negative experience often around food. So they might have had a choking incident or they might have had an allergic reaction or you know something that has created a huge amount of fear or avoidance of eating certain foods or food altogether can generalise. And so people with ARFID will have one, two or three of those characteristics which would become treatment targets if they were to pursue treatment. And so when you talk about sensory, would you include textures in that? Yes, exactly. Textures, flavours, even smells. Um, There can be a severe aversion to smells as well. The Butterfly Foundation emphasises that it's not a lifestyle choice or a cry for attention. Everyone's experience of an eating disorder is unique. Now, this isn't an area that I want to imply we have a quick three-step answer for, because we know that there's strong evidence that eating disorders have a genetic basis. There are a variety of eating disorders, such as anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder, among others. If you're a carer or a parent, this can make some of the warning signs more difficult to identify. Keep in mind that your teenager will also experience shame and guilt about their behavior and they will try to hide it. So the physical, psychological and behavioral warning signs will look very different for each child. Please go to the link for the Butterfly Foundation in the show notes. And if you have any concerns, go to your GP and ask them for recommendations on the next steps. Moving now away from ARFID, I want to also talk about BDD or body dysmorphic disorder. I've noticed that boys' symptoms would often escalate during times of stress, like during end of year exams or during lockdown or coming out of lockdown for that matter, perhaps when they've experienced bullying or some general friendship issue. Can you explain body dysmorphic disorder and how that develops or presents in boys? Yeah, that's a really great question. Body dysmorphic disorder. Interestingly, we we tend to cluster it with eating disorders because we see it associated with body image concerns and we, we sort of put them all under the same umbrella. But BDD or body dysmorphic disorder is actually much more highly related to OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. So it shares a lot of the same sort of characteristics in terms of the behaviours and the thinking patterns. So it's often very compulsive. There's some suggestion that it's related to serotonin in the brain. So in the same way that OCD is often managed with SSRIs um, and SRIs is a medication group body dysmorphic disorder similar. They've noticed a reduction in body dysmorphic behaviours and thoughts when someone does take SSRIs or SRIs. So there's a a physiological basis often for the disorder um, as well as a whole heap of maintaining behaviours that the person will engage in. So all around managing anxiety or distress really around the body. So the types of behaviours that we see are often checking sort of behaviours, so like body checking, looking in the mirror, looking at reflective surfaces, you know, checking in general, and avoidance, um, so avoiding often the same sorts of things depending on the person and the unique characteristics of their BDD. And so what does it look like when a boy has BDD? What is a parent noticing? Yeah, so boys typically, um, it's, it's more nuanced often towards muscle mass and shape sometimes in the context of what we'd consider to be an ideal male 
physique based on, you know, action figures and movie characters and things like that. The thing that's really interesting with BDD, though, is, you know, although we can make those sorts of generalizations in relation to body ideals, often people who have BDD, it doesn't necessarily need to be related to shape or weight. And again, a bit like before, when I said that most people with an eating disorder, you wouldn't think twice if you look past them in the street because a lot of eating disordered behavior, you know, people are sitting in the regular weight range. And similar with body dysmorphia, you know, often someone become preoccupied or fixated by a part of their body. So a guy might sort of think his nose is the wrong shape or wrong size, and that might be the source of preoccupation. But to anyone else in the street, they would look at that person's nose and wouldn't think anything of it, you know, so they're not visible defects in the eyes of the person, they're defects, and they'd be compared to like burns or scars or deformations. Um, But that's not necessarily how the rest of the world would see that, you know, supposed flaw. Yeah. So they would be looking in the mirror and thinking, you know, I've got the longest legs in my whole grade. My legs are yeah. so weird and, or, you know, my, my shoulders are too hunched or whatever it is. They, they seem to just focus on that one area of their body. That's exactly right. And so the checking behavior is very, becomes very narrow and very focused. So in treatment, often what we'd be doing is trying to expand someone's view of themselves. So it's not sort of looking only at the sort of problematic part of the body or problematic shape. It's kind of being able to step back and the language that someone would use as they're talking about their supposed flaw would often be quite extreme. So we'd be trying to neutralize and generalize the language that they're using. So rather than talking about it as a defect, you know, being able to talk about it in in a much more realistic or helpful way. Okay. And Sarah, what I also find fascinating is that we talk about the effects of media on girls a lot. But when I was doing research, even for my book, I was fascinated to see that boys Boys often don't realize that male images are also photoshopped and enhanced and boys are actually quite surprised at how how much that is happening. They don't actually realize that it's part of what affects their view of themselves. Do you come across much of that in your work? Yeah, I, I do. And I think that it's tricky because it seems as though there at least is a level of awareness in the community about girls and the factors which contribute to body image in girls. But often boys and males are so forgotten that we don't really see them as the targets of marketing campaigns or we don't see them as victims, yeah. I guess, in the same way that we perhaps see girls. But the reality is, is that they're just as vulnerable and they often don't have the support around them that girls have. They don't have the social support. There's an assumption that we, we hold that often that they're okay and that they don't need help. And boys deal with problems often in a way that's quite different from girls and it's very easy for them to internalise them or they don't sort of seek out social support in the way that girls do. I mean, this is obviously a massive generalisation, of course, but, you know, it's really important that we are wary and more careful and more thoughtful um, when it comes to voice and, and body image and social media. How do you talk with some of your clients about body image? And obviously I'm asking you quite a general question because you will have boys who will come in with very different diagnoses, but how would you advise a parent to talk to their teenage son about boys and bodies and body image in general? I think it's important that we don't perpetuate the idea that it's a girl's problem or you know that it's something that we shouldn't talk about and so part of it is just to be able to be frank and open um in the language that we're using and normalize the fact that it's something that a lot of people and particularly a lot of boys do experience and so long as we're actually having discussions around this then that's helpful 
You just heard Sarah mention that eating disorders are not just a girl's issue. In fact, this is one of the eight common myths highlighted on the Butterfly Foundation's website. Some of the others are eating disorders are a lifestyle choice or about vanity. Dieting is a normal part of life. Eating disorders are just a cry for attention or that families, particularly parents, are to blame for eating disorders. They only affect white middle-class females. You can tell by looking at someone they have an eating disorder. They are trivial or benign and they are for life. None of these are true. Remember that they are serious, but with support, they can be managed. Often these things have been many years in the making. Often it's sort of the iceberg that we don't know how big the iceberg underneath is, but we sort of start to see the tip. And so it can be a big problem and it can be something that's been building often for many years that we don't necessarily have any awareness of. Uh, So it's unrealistic to think that we're going to have one magical conversation with them where they are suddenly acknowledging that there's concerns and wanting to seek help around them. So bearing in mind that it's going to be a number of conversations probably over a number of time, that there's likely to be resistance and there's likely to be avoidance, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're wrong or that we've had the wrong conversation or gone about it the wrong way. Look, I think it's really important as parents, and this is for girls and for boys, that we do have body image on our radar from an early age because these messages that we're seeing in teenagehood, early adulthood, they're often ideas which have been internalised since that young person has been very, very young. And so if mum or dad is constantly on a diet, if mum or dad is commenting on other people's appearance favourably or unfavourably, those sorts of things, they're going to have an impact on how the young person views themselves and views the world. And Similarly, you know, I think one thing which I find really interesting is parents going on a on a diet or going to great lengths to change their appearance. You know, it's really important that for biological children, they're there kind of replicate um, to some extent what the parents look like. So, you know, what message is that sending a child if you're saying, look, I'm not happy with how I look? You're more or less kind of saying to your child that there's something wrong with their appearance as well. And so we really need to be careful of those messages. I think if the foundation is not in place and that we don't have a good relationship with food or exercise or our bodies ourselves, then it's going to be very, very difficult to have a meaningful conversation with the young person as well. Yeah, and so I know I've heard you say this, and I think I've I've used some of your words in the past, how we exercise because it's good for our heart and it's good for our mental health and not exercising simply to build muscle or for thinness. And I think conversations or our language as parents can almost communicate to our children that we exercise to punish our bodies into submission in some way. So, you know, it's, it's around that language and how we talk about celebrities on TV and there's celebrities that we see in the media at the moment who are mm. completely celebrated because of they've changed their body shape. And that really concerns me because it, it only seems to celebrate the person who has got this stereotypical body shape as the one who's worthy of recognition. Uh, And so, yeah, I think it's the challenge to us as parents in how we talk about other people, whether it's the lady in the grocery store or celebrities on TV and our own relationship with food and exercise, which is where we start, I think, is what I've always heard you say. Yeah, absolutely. And I look, I think you make such an important point there, Colette, about exercising for pleasure in a way that's sustainable you know it's sort of like this undercurrent that we're talking about here and social media is exactly the same it's not doing things to be seen or because they might make us look good you know it's it's kind of shifting the focus so we're doing things 
because they make us feel good. We're finding moving our body in a way that's pleasurable, in a way that's sustainable. It doesn't matter what we look like. Those sorts of things are really important. And similarly, social media is exactly the same. So we're putting things on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or, you know, whatever platform that we might use. Although that's, you know, hard to kind of steer away from that. It's quite natural that we want to present our best selves. But moving away from doing things for appearances. So I think for us who are already adults and we grew up without Facebook or without social media, like I was in my 20s when Facebook came around and, you know, now it's it's been here probably for almost 20 years. And, you know, by that stage as a comparison to someone who's grown up at a time where social media and this kind of constant narrative about doing things to look good, doing things for how they're seen, curating your narrative, photoshopping your images of yourself. You know, it's a really big contrast. And the message overall is about how things look and doing things to look good rather than how things feel. And so, again, when we're thinking about inoculating young people from body image concerns and eating issues, it's about helping them occupy their body and helping them to be connected to their body. You know, that helps us to know how we like moving our body. It also helps with eating intuitively. If we're actually connected to our body, helps us manage emotions and regulate distress and you know, all of these sorts of things that then become risk factors for developing other psychological problems like eating disorders or depression and anxiety if we haven't learned those skills when we're young. So I think, you know, when it comes to body image and eating disorders, often I know parents are really interested in the nitty gritty of like, what's anorexia, what's bulimia. But I think the much more helpful thing is focusing on prevention and building resilience, building self-esteem, self-compassion, building a healthy relationship with exercise as well. And so Sarah, coming back to right in the beginning, I mentioned the term health at every size and saying you were the first person I ever heard use that term. Can you explain the philosophy around that term? Yeah, it's a really, I think it's quite a liberating and groundbreaking idea because we live in a society that's so weight centric. Weight is kind of the core of everything. We still measure health often by weight. There's a lot of confounding in research that correlates weight um, and kind of doesn't factor in things like behavior, lifestyle, you know, those sorts of variables which might have an impact on longer term health outcomes. And like health at every size really shifts the focus away from what the number on the scales is to what pattern of behavior is, because we know ultimately someone who engages in regular physical activity and health-giving behavior is going to be more healthy in most instances, regardless of where their weight actually sits. And we also know there are a lot of people who can be sitting at what we might consider to be healthy body weights or even low body weights who are actually engaging in really unhealthy weight loss practices such as smoking or restricting food severely or abusing their body at the gym or diet pills. You know, there's a lot of really unhealthy behaviors that someone might be engaging in just to maintain a low body weight. And so we can't really tell how healthy someone is just by looking at them. And so the nice thing about health at every size is really shifting the discourse away from the focus on what the number on the scales is to an ongoing process of health-giving behavior. And health-giving behavior doesn't need to be limited to you know food and exercise health giving behavior is actually far more holistic than that it includes things like our faith it includes things like our social health our financial health potentially which we're not sort of necessarily promoting that people would be pursuing wealth but we do know that there's socioeconomic variables which can impact on other health outcomes like access to safe drinking water access to good food access to opportunities to engage in recreation and physical activity so yeah, health is a very broad concept and it's it's not a destination. It's something that we, we do for the rest of our lives. 
So something I always say to parents is you need to get those scales out of your bathroom, go put them in the garage where all the other tools are and it's only to be used as a tool to weigh uh, guests' luggage before they get on the plane. I love that. So, yeah, because the number on the scales doesn't determine your health. So That's right, and it doesn't determine your worth either. Yeah, absolutely. So, Sarah, what advice would you give to a parent who feels like they are concerned their son may have an eating disorder or severe body image issues? What steps should they take next to seek help? Great question. So I think starting place would be contacting someone like the Butterfly Foundation or a local eating disorder charity. So the Butterfly Foundation in New South Wales is the predominant eating disorder charity, but that is a national charity. And a number of other states like Victoria and Queensland also have specific state-based charities. Of course, as you know, health is something that's funded at a federal and state level. So uh, there's different kind of pathways to help. But I would suggest contacting someone like that as a starting place because it's, you know, it's really quite a journey, often even helping the young person understand that there's a problem. And often that's the biggest and most challenging journey. My experience with working with people with eating problems and exercise problems is when they realize that there's a problem and want help, that actually recovery is relatively straightforward. It's supporting someone to get to a stage where they actually recognize that there's something that's problematic and want to make change. And again, I think, you know, we've spent a bit of time today talking about the social and cultural influences. The reality is that we live in such a toxic recovery environment for so many people. And so, so many of the things that we identify maybe as a parent might be problematic because of the extent that someone's engaging on it or the level of distress that they might experience if they don't engage in some particular behaviours. The problem is that for a young person, they're actually just doing what's culturally sanctioned and considered to be quite normal. And those varying degrees, you know, it's a fine line between something being considered healthy and actually then sort of tipping over to becoming unhealthy and you know, often people won't necessarily see that. So you know, I'd encourage anyone to reach out and get some people on your team to work through that journey of supporting someone. It can be helpful to engage in a psychologist with a psychologist, a school counsellor or something like that in the meantime, but often the focus would be more around building resilience or um, targeting areas that they might be concerned about, like social anxiety or depression or, you know, feeling sad. If someone's... Um, sort of under 18, they have a restrictive eating disorder. The gold standard treatment is known as Maudsley Family Therapy, which is a family therapy approach. And I guess it's probably beyond the scope of this podcast because it's, you know, detailed in terms of engaging in that process. But that's the sort of thing that an eating disorder charity can help with in terms of hooking you up to best treatment. Um, And certainly, one of the good things about Maudsley Family Therapy is it doesn't matter if the person realises that there's a problem or not because it's really a race against a clock or a ticking time bomb. If you have your child losing weight dramatically in front of your eyes, you know, you need to get them into treatment and you need to get them better as quickly as possible because the risks, the physical and health risks, the other sorts of risks as well can be quite extreme if somebody doesn't turn that behavior around really quickly. So that's a family-based treatment where parents are very heavily involved in supporting their loved one in recovering. You know, we know that the basically the eating issues and, and body image issues can be a really slippery slope. So the sooner we can get someone to access treatment, the better the outcomes are likely to be for them. Thank you. And so finally, Sarah, like I said in the beginning, we both have boys. What is your hope for boys? Look, 
It's interesting having boys because I've spent my whole life, you know, growing up with a family which was predominantly female, working with predominantly female psychologists and working with predominantly female clientele. So having sons has been really interesting and eye-opening for me because I think it's really, well, I, I guess I've had an appreciation now of how as much as I believe in supporting women and supporting girls, and I'm not sure if this is uh, part of why you wrote your book, Colette, but, you know, I feel as though boys are often overlooked and neglected and, you know, really so badly off in so many ways in the sense that the, the expectations of boys are quite unrealistic. They send such mixed messages by the media and by society. So I do have a, an empathy for boys and for males that I probably didn't really necessarily even, wasn't just on my radar, I think, until I had boys myself. So I really would like to see that boys are actually on the radar and taken more seriously and that we invest more time and money and expertise in in trying to understand boys more and more. Sarah reminded me that this is such a complex topic. One area that we need to be aware of as adults is to think about our own language and relationship with our bodies and with food. Our kids are soaking in what we say and what we do, and this affects how they see themselves and how they see the world around them. I talk a little about boys and their body image in season one, episode 10. There are also resources in the show notes, and I really encourage you to look into this more if you're worried about your son or your daughter. If you want to find out more about Sarah's work, you can find her at bodymatters.com.au. You can also find me or leave a question for a future episode at raisingteenagers.com.au or via the Raising Teens page at hopepodcast.com.au. Please subscribe and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'd love to see you next episode. And in the meantime, keep parenting with your teen's future adult in mind. This episode was hosted by Colette Smart, edited and produced by Alec Green, imaging by Lucy Weil, and social media by Beth Rivers. This is a Hope 1032 production. Thanks for listening.